Hey, hello, and welcome back to the Trap One podcast, where we're delighted to be on our third quest into the Paul Mars multiverse for Serpent Crest. So, hello, I'm Sai, and I'm joined by Mark and Pete, who, of course, have we have discussed all um, both of the previous series. So, we're we're very glad to be back at Nest Cottage um, for our third um, set of adventures. So this was the set that was originally um, released in 2011. So and was the last thing before Tom Baker went off to Big Finish, and um, we know what happened there. It's all going splendidly for him there to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is sort of the last gasp, really, of this um, BBC audio series uh, like this before they went into sort of standalone or sort of mini. Um, uh, mostly narrated um, audios rather than um, sort of full cast um, adventures. There's a lot of ums there. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I've come prepared. Anyway, um, so, um, Mark, can you tell us a bit about the um, record release? Because this is what, what has brought us together for this one. And it's another gorgeous one, isn't it? Yeah, this is the, the record is out now. Again, as with everything you I know kind of uh ironic like a broken record uh demon music group do fantastic doctor who releases the art is always absolutely stunning uh obviously i haven't got this set because they are prohibitively expensive i would say <laughs> despite the limited numbers of them that they're, they're all still available all three series are still available oh wow so they they come with yeah gorgeous uh this we can see on the internet the cover's gorgeous the individual record sleeves are all absolutely beautiful they've got there's loads of artwork there's a booklet and a signed tom baker print as well which which i guess is one of the things we've said before that makes these quite desirable because it's been quite some time since tom baker's done any events and i think there are signings that he does for uh you know for one of the convention companies where you can post things and, and get them signed but yeah, it's a it's a nice way of getting uh, you know an original signature from on a on a you know quite a limited edition lovely piece of uh, of artwork as well. So uh, yeah, imagine all the stuff that's in the CDs as well is in there. So you've got sort of newspaper fragments and unit reports and uh, and that kind of thing. So I imagine all that's in, included as well. Yeah, they're, they're sort of like coffee table art books, aren't they? Just that, that happen to also come with a load of LPs in with yeah. it. They're just so, <laughs> so uh, deluxe and, uh, and and glamorous looking. Or you can get it for one credit on on Audible, which is what I did the entire trilogy. <laughs> so it's not, you know, they're, 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 it's accessible to everybody, whatever whatever pockets you've, you've got. Yeah. Definitely. I think we've said this before, but if you haven't heard these, then yeah, do seek them out on Audible or, or revisit them if, uh, you know, if you haven't looked at them for a while, because they're, they're amazing stories are beautifully told. And um, yeah, I sort of remembered that this series, that they weren't narrated, because we had a combination narration and, and the cast acting mm. them. And for some reason, I, I remember this series as being fully acted. But there's only the first story that is, isn't there? And the rest all have an element of narration as well. So that was kind of a memory cheats thing, I think. Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, this one, and this one has a, a, a very distinctive set of sort of, I don't know, the individual episodes to it are, are very distinctive. There, it's like it's like he knows this is the third part of his trilogy, and he's got these five episodes, and the, the first three are all sort of um and they each have very different styles and then we sort of round it off with like a two-parter basically don't we um it's uh uh yeah it it, it and it's 
I think it's more. I think the other two are more similar to each other. And this, whereas this third part of the trilogy goes off, there's not so much not so much wasp activity in this one. Uh, it, yeah. it, it's like the, first, the the number two is a sequel to number one, whereas number three is more of a, a different thing that just, just happens to happens to also be set around Nest Cottage and Hexford and um, and with, with the the Wibsyverse. I think Wibsyverse is but yeah i i love the little hints from from mrs wibsey where she's really nervous of next door's um beehives and and it's just sort of setting it up like oh or could it no it's not going to be but it yeah, it's be, actually a red but, herring yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the bees are a and, red herring this time yes <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant way of playing with the listeners expectations because the hornets came back at the very end of the last story, sort of unexpectedly, in the, I think in the last two parts or the last yes. part. So as we go into the final two parts of this one, then there's these hints about these beehives and things as well. So it's playing with, with our expectations and Mrs. Wibsey's mm-hmm. uh, fears as well because she was controlled by them uh, you know, on two occasions, oh. wasn't she? So it's the, And it's a story narrated by her as well where we, where we learn about that. So it's uh, yeah, it's mm-hmm. a really, really nice way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, while I liked the... Some full cast adventure. It's sort of, in some ways, it was a bit disappointing because what I really have liked about all of these stories is that they're their own thing, and it's the mixture of narration and the character points of views, and you get right in the character's head and get all of that, and then um, then you get sort of the dialogue sort of between all the characters as well, and that's what has made these special and different from everything else whereas sort of doing um star wars in sort of the big finish style is kind of well it's kind of like you could get this everywhere and i would mm. like these because they're different <laughs> yeah yeah i mean I suppose at this point it, it was still it was a novelty to have tom baker it's, it's like this is basically but they basically tricked him i think they're like yeah tom it's just reading a book it's just an audio book and then here we go by the time we get to the start the, the so, so yeah star wars is the first of these five episodes isn't it and um and by the time we get to that it's just it's just tom baker playing the doctor which is what he said he never really wanted to do again but <laughs> you can't stop him point him at no. a microphone because <laughs> because the fourth doctor is tom baker anyway so it's not it's like he has to put on a, an act to become that it's just it's literally who he is yeah i know you mean size like sort of a cozy fireside being told a story element to these the, the whole sort of like the cottage and the english countryside and everything and that mm-hmm. that is this star wars is the furthest away from that isn't it like say so it's um it's and and as you say as well these these first three stories have really varying bold different styles of story like the showing you know the range of what you can do with doctor and, and the range of what you can do on audio i guess as well Absolutely, and I think this is our our first sort of um, big futuristic story as well. We've not really had a story like this sort of within the previous ten adventures that we've had with with Mrs. Wibsey and Mike and the Fourth Doctor. We've mostly been into the past or the present day, but we've not really had a big alien robot mm. empires kind of story mm. at all. Yeah, it's a bit like um, as happened in the Graham Williams era. There's this sudden tonal shift, or yeah, of, of, of setting and of and of the type of story that you're getting told. Yeah, and then there's several more within this within this uh, this this uh, series. Yeah, yeah, it moves away from that kind of folk horror style of uh, of some of the previous stories, doesn't it? And it's a great pun calling it Star Wars. 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, that would appeal to you, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the most brilliant pieces pieces of punning in a Doctor Who story title since um, Is There a Doctor in the Horse? <laughs> yes, yes. And then it all just it all just escalates when we start. So, so you start thinking, okay, well, they're clearly doing a Nicholas and Alexandra thing here with all the Russian things. And and, and then along comes um, Tsar Nicholas himself in the form of Michael Jason <laughs> um, pl- playing um, playing the, the, the Tsar, the titular Tsar of, of the episode. Yeah, which is just a wonderful piece of casting and i wonder how they pitched it to him come back and play Zarnik, nick come on and he's a robot <laughs> Tom, come on because <laughs> it's yeah oh, the robotov empire that's, that's yes. the, the puns yeah. all escalate don't mm-hmm. they <laughs> yeah and the other one is the it's the um the holy and integral empire holy with a w as opposed to the holy and imperial uh <laughs> Sort of uh, my, um, uh, of the the SARS, the, I can't remember quite what the phrase was. It's like, uh, is it monarch, monarchist regency, holy imperial Russian monarchist regency? I looked you, it up. You, yes. you don't need to sound so tentative. You could say anything, and we would completely believe you because you know a lot more than about it. Clearly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I was just interested because it kept saying holy and integral, and I thought, Wait, what is that? A, what is that a kind of a reference to? And yes, yeah, so it's holy and imperial instead. So that, that was quite nice, and it sounds more futuristic and robotic, doesn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, I love all that. And I love that they had a rebel moon as well. That just is. That feels really. Star Warsy as well, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. it's kind of Star Warsy after the fact because I, yes. I thought it had a, a, a Star Wars link, but there is actually there's an upcoming Zack Snyder movie called Rebel Moon, which is based on a pitch that he made for a Star Wars film that didn't go mm. ahead. But I I had an idea that it had been a working title or something for one of the other Star Wars films. But yeah, I think it just it just sounds Star Warsy, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it was pitched as such. But he's yeah, he's coming out as a kind of standalone science fiction film now but there's a couple of there's a line about heir to the empire in this story which is a star wars novel okay but yeah it's more it's more uh it's more a pastiche of the romanovs isn't it than uh than it is a star wars yeah but it throws everything there was a bit that reminded me of battlestar galactica a bit because they're talking about um uh you know the, the robots are trying to become human and this is post battlestar galactica relaunch isn't it what year was that that yes, was yeah, 20, definitely this is two three years after that yeah, yeah. The, the idea of robots sort of almost become human and then the the, the plot twist of are they actually going to literally become human by by merging um and and i like the fact that at the beginning of this you know the doc the first people the doctor meets he doesn't know for sure whether they're the goodies or the baddies basically and it's like oh you've got you must save us these terrible hordes are coming to overthrow us but then it turns you know that then you've got to find out whether a lot of these terrible hordes are actually the, the freedom fighters who want to be liberated the doctor ought to be helping yes and then you've got um the mysterious father gregory turning up as well who's going to save the the <laughs> Stop the war and stop the um and save both races by merging them both. And yeah, and good old Tom, he is is in another double role. Playing the role that he played in the Nicholas and Alexandra movie, in effect, of, yeah. of, of, of let's basically call him Rasputin, but it's not yeah. it's not the master. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. Brother Gregory, isn't it? Brother Gre- which yes. I think it was one of mm-hmm. Rasputin's names. Yeah. It's, uh, Father um, Gregory. 
Father um, Gregory, yeah, yeah. Because there's a really nice line when uh, Mrs. Wibsy says, Father, and she goes, have you been? And then it just tails off. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I thought that was, uh, that was yeah, quite a nice sort of subtle uh, subtle thing from Mrs. Wibsy there. Yeah, I was interested, uh, I rewatched. well, I say rewatched Nicholas and Alexandra. I thought I'd seen it before, but when mm-hmm. I started watching it, I think I didn't finish it. Um, it's, it's, it's incredibly long and really, it's, <laughs> It's a really downbeat, as you'd expect, downbeat movie. Um, I think it's to be admired more than enjoyed in a way because it, it looks beautiful. It's got an incredible cast, hmm. but it's just sort of relentlessly grim and gets worse and worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, it's it's good. I was interested to to see how Tom Baker's performance as Father Gregory in this compares to his performance as Rasputin. Yeah, obviously, plays Rasputin with an English accent in the movie. But I guess that would have been oh. too close to the Doctor in this. So he plays it, my well, sort of indistinct accent. It's quite Germanic, isn't it? I think because he pronounces his W's as V's. He says Mrs. Vibsy. <laughs> yes, I I doubt that there was an accuracy coach on board trying to get him to do an authentic <laughs> accent. I imagine you just tell Tom Baker you're, you're being Father Gregory, and he's off <laughs> with an accent of his own. <laughs> But he does it quite sl- slow and measured like he does with Rasputin for a lot of it. But then he has that yeah. kind of manic giggling that Rasputin does in the film as well. Yeah, it's not just an accent, is it? It's, I mean, he becomes a completely different character. It's mm. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I mean, from watching Nicholas and Alexandra for the first time yeah. at the weekend, I was surprised at how um, underplayed Rasputin was when it could have been been played much bigger by Tom and mm. probably a few years later would have been played much bigger than Tom. So it was very interesting to see him and compare the sort of two performances, sort of pre-Doctor Who and post-Doctor Who and see what he, what he, uh, how his sort of methods of ch- playing a similar character um, sort of changes over the years. Because Father, Father Gregory in this is very teeters a lot of the time on overplaying and um it's not a it's not a necessarily a subtle performance (laughs) and it's what 42 years later yeah and it's like it's like um uh um uh uh in um ever since brian blessed did flash gordon like he always had it in him he's always he's always a bit larger than life but once he's done flash gordon there's no stopping brian blessed and there's no putting him back in that bottle and i guess it's it's similar to tom baker once tom baker's been doctor yeah once tom (laughs) baker's been doctor who he can never really be a character actor again he can only ever be tom baker Mm -hmm. and that's why we love him so that's fine (laughs) (laughs) it's not a bad thing but it's just really fascinating to see see sort of those processes and see see mm. what he did with the same character after all these all, all these years and he gets some scenes acting with himself of both versions in the same scene which is uh nice to have you so you always feel cheated if they do a, if they do the same person as two characters and they don't get to meet yeah and they make you wait for that for a lot of the story as well because it's what <laughs> is what you want to see as they will later in the story with another important meeting Mm-hmm. They 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 kind of uh, they tease you and, and make you wait for it. And this felt like the beginning of a huge epic that was going to be set in this Robotov Empire. And so I was quite surprised when it's actually completely wrapped up. In so in terms of the the, the outer space element uh, at, at the end of this episode, I thought I thought we were going to be up, out here with these guys for a long time for the for the, for the duration, you know. But no, not at all. This is. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. So, and we're going to see what the um, Skishtari 
um, influence on. Sorry, I can't say it normally because I'm a So he corrupts even us. Uh, but we want to see what what their plan was, what their corruption of this empire was going to be, how they were going to face off about it. And then it goes, it doesn't do that at all. It's really, really interesting stuff from Paul Mars here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those I think Paul Mars is brilliant at coming up with those names that Tom Baker really enjoys delivering like Skishtari and Bulin and uh, and those sort of things. He knows, yeah. uh, he knows how to sort of feed him the 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 lines for him to really uh, really enjoy enjoy the delivery. I think. And I think he's done that right from Mrs. Wibsey onwards. Yeah. I, just, as soon as you I read the word, I can just hear Tom Baker saying yeah. Wibsey. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a marvellous way. That was probably what got him to agree to do it in the first place. <laughs> you know, your companion, which is a, a Victorian housekeeper called, is she Victorian or Edwardian? Edwardian, ha- isn't she? Yeah, ha- housekeeper called Mrs. Wibsey. <laughs> how, <laughs> how could he resist? That's what he'd wanted all these years. Yes, so we have... Um, Obviously, a Skishtari egg implanted within the body of a cyborg named Alexis, who is the saviour of the the Robotov Empire by being half human and half robot, um, which is a really great idea. But this egg becomes sort of the mcguffin almost of this series doesn't it so mm. this is what so this is the setup then for for where we end up going sort of after this so it's all about this egg which it turns out is the um contains the gene pool for the skishtari and is sort of massively um powerful and cannot be tampered with because it will unleash the skishtari in in um, sort of all directions after if it's tampered with, but also if the baby Skishtari breaks out, it's going to eat the entire population of a world. So they're quite a ferocious um, yeah. set of villains he's created this time. Yeah, predating Kill the Moon there, where it's just like, well, maybe it'll kill everyone, maybe it won't. You've just got mm-hmm. to have hope. No, <laughs> it will actually kill everyone. It's going to be very hungry. Mm-hmm. But it, um, and and it's, I mean, it's, it, it really suits the framing, doesn't it? Here we've got this um, Imperial Russian vibe, and then we've got Mrs. Wibsey saying it's just like a Fabergé egg. Uh, so there you go. You know exactly what you what you're dealing with. It, it's nice. It doesn't have to go into lengthy descriptions of it. it, it, it it's really easy to, to picture it in your mind's eye just on. That, that information and the context mm. and that's where you get the echoes of, of nicholas and alexandra is that uh, father gregory is the the person that the sarina believes is the only one that can sort of heal her child in the movie uh, alexis has got hemophilia and here it's because he's a cyborg where they're trying to unite the humans and robots and then they've created this cyborg so he's got sort of a, uh, kind of a human heart and eyes and different things, uh, which, uh, yeah, it sort of reminds me a little bit of um, Girl in the Fireplace and things like that as well, that kind of mixture of uh, mm. of, of real organs in amongst all the sort of technology. Um, but the uh, Father Gregory, on behalf of the Skishtari, has, uh, has implanted this egg w- within him. So they managed to take that out and save the boy with uh, with Father Gregory's heart, which is sort of his dying act to uh, to, to save him. And the doctor says we'll send them all via the wormhole, which uh, which is what brought he and Mrs. Wibsey there in the first place back to Hexford and Nest Cottage. 
And it's all, it's a bit it's all quite magical, isn't it? It's kind of how, hold on, Wibsy, in we go, and you don't. And you yeah. might, what is actually happening there? What are they literally jumping into a hole together, holding hands? I guess, but it doesn't. You, you don't really think of it in that way. It's just it's all done with audio, and they're, mm. they're swept they're swept up in uh, in in, a, in the sound of it all, and, and magically transported off back to uh, back to Next Cottage. Except or they're not. They? <laughs> <laughs> the wormholes. I think the wormholes are Babylon Five thing too, or um, or, or Deep Space Nine, isn't it? it? It's like we wanted to have little nods to everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then we're, we're jetted off into part two, aren't we? We are, which is the Broken Crown, and as everyone said, it takes us back to Hexford, but Hexford pre Ness Cottage, um, and it's very much um, mid Victorian village territory which again feels like the perfect home for the fourth doctor and mrs wibsey really they seem to fit right in here but also they don't fit in at all here which is is great and so we've got um, a village where they don't like strangers where they're slightly cut off from everyone else where the um the the reverend dobbs is busy uh there's hints that he's He's an alcoholic and he's drinking himself um, silly because of things that are going on, and and it's just that question of what's happened here, what what is this, what what's going on, and it takes a little while to sort of work it out. We're working this out with the Doctor and Mrs. Wibsey as they work out Nest Cottage isn't here, so where when have we arrived? So we and and all of that. So and I it's full of all the fictional archetypes that you want from a Victorian <laughs> sort of mystery adventure um so right from terence hardiman who is brilliant as the reverend dobbs and just again has got the right kind of fruitiness in his voice um and it, it was lovely to hear him again because uh as we know sort of recently we he he passed away so it was really nice sort of hearing his voice again sort of so soon after that so it'd been a little while and i'd forgotten he was in this and i hadn't looked at the cast mm. list and then he started talking and i thought ah it's terence hardiman Hooray! <laughs> The demon headmaster himself, mm-hmm. yeah, and he bit, and he start and, and you know it's a lo- it's a lovely role as well. And you know, over the course of the the story, I mean, he starts out so unfriendly and gruff, and then uh, becomes uh, becomes embroiled and helping the doctor and everything as we get as we go along. It's a really nice little character development part, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's a lot lot more su- subtlety to yeah to his character than you immediately think because you think he's just this very harsh. Hmm. sort of taskmaster with with the the boy but you realize that he just does he does just want to protect him and and look after him but his way of expressing that is is you know not not ideal sort of thing and it really i I really like the way it makes the most of the audio medium here where you don't know that the boy who is his ward uh andrew is wearing a brown paper mask there's a couple of hints early on uh they say somebody might see you from the window and when he goes to meet his friends in the woods, they say something like, or they, as usual, they're initially shocked at my appearance or something like that. And then we don't learn until the doctor and Mrs. Wibsey meet him that he's wearing a brown paper mask that he's actually decorated with a face. Yeah, that's... This This feels much more like the Nest Cottage kind of vibe, doesn't it, I think? It's yeah. This kind yeah. of uh, folk horror English... Big Gothic. Side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and there's hints and there's things like, for example, one of the characters is being played. Mr. Bewley is played by Simon Shepherd, and that's a, he's he's got a similar name to a character we had in the previous story. And that, are they the same person or not? Uh, and it, it cleverly 
plays with your expectation the fact that you can't see them becomes a, a game that the story plays with you yeah to sort of mm. tease you until somebody mentions it yeah yeah and then suddenly all the pieces sort of fit into place mm. but again because you can't see it it it's playing beautifully with with the audio thing so mr mr Bewley could be someone else because you can't see him you're not instantly going to put two and two together it's just we know that in these adventures the casts are often shared across different episodes but with yeah. the same cast playing different characters so it could well be so it's paul mars knowing the limit knowing what's happened in the in the previous two sets and then yeah. playing with your expectations a little bit more i think yeah and this one so i've always, i've always had a bit of a What's the opposite of a soft spot? I don't know. I've, no, I've, I've always not been particularly enticed. Even when I was a kid, science fiction with children in it didn't. It was I always got a bit. Oh, I don't want annoying children. But in this one, there are lots of children in it. Well, not lots of several. Several of the main characters are children, and they're fine. They don't annoy me in the way that children normally do. And and the whole thing of the broken crown with it being a, a Jack and Jill reference, all sort of. Um, uh, r- related to the, the the kids' injuries in this, with his, his, he's literally got a broken head. Uh, um, it'll, it it just gels in a way that that is that's that's fine, and and so they, yeah, they ended up not annoying me. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's this is glowing praise from me. To say that. <laughs> I, I think Guy Harvey as Andrew, who narrates this this story as well, is yes. really really good. Yeah, he, yeah. he gets the he's got the tone straight off. He's he's really great. I couldn't find much more that he'd done really. Um, no. Yeah, kind of looking him up. Um, but yeah, he's like you say he's excellent in this. I don't know whether he was a kid or how young he was, or you know the way he was playing younger. But yeah, I think he's really good. And as are all the the kids in it. And I mm. think I think what makes them quite good is like they're they're just amoral, aren't they? They're not trying to make them you know particularly likable or anything. They're just kids and they maybe their you know the kind of morality hasn't developed yet but they i mean they're it's pretty bad what they're doing they're, they're quite happily just like zapping people with the egg and making <laughs> them disappear but in a way that a kid doesn't really understand the ramifications no. and consequences mm. of it you know and you know when you're a kid and you've got the ultimate power like that you're going to use it because it's fun and it's, yeah. it's exciting <laughs> and it's different isn't it mm. and i love that he chose the name sally and jake because um there's a very um, very, very forgotten um, TV series that I watched when I was a kid called Sally and Jake, which was a spin-off from Stories on um, on Rainbow, and it was made by Cosgrove Hall. And it's one of those series that has been been largely forgotten, but I've always remembered the names for some reason. So it's <laughs> got to be a Paul Mars reference to that. Absolutely. And their theme right. tune sounded very much like the music from <laughs> the car chase in Mordred Undead. <laughs> It's it's uncanny <laughs> if you ever hear it. It's the same piece of music. Oh boy! So there you go. Please write in if you've heard of Sally and Jake and tell me I have not dreamt this. <laughs> so we get we get a hint about the next story as well because uh, Andrew is trying to read Arabian Nights in the in the library, but the um, he's not allowed to read fiction because they're worried it's going to kind of get him too excited and. Uh, mm. I suppose give him ideas as well about kind of wanting to see the world and travel, whereas 
uh, Reverend Dobbs, you know, realizes that he probably, you know, he's not going to really be able to have a normal life, so he's going to have to keep him there and not really give him those ideas about uh, about traveling further afield. No, and again, that's um, one of those things that feels like um, the sort of the childhoods of all the characters in great Victorian novels. So I'm thinking particularly of Jane Eyre here, who's not allowed to read and um, you're, not, you're punished for, for being this and you're locked in the, the parsonage or, or wherever and can't see the rest of the world. And it's only sort of later on that you realise why he's not allowed to do this and he's not allowed to see these things. So it's very much sort of playing into the archetypes and then twisting them slightly, which is is really great. And got a cracking ending, I think, with the with the world ending and the village being terrorised by dragons and all of these things from his imagination that is um, just um, sort of thrown out by the egg and the power mm. that the egg has. Um, it's just really, really great. And it sets up that psychic link with the egg, which is going to be important later on, doesn't it? And the the bond and the uh, the link that he's got with it. Yeah, yeah, and it's very like a gra- almost like a graphic novel. In audio form, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then the third story is a completely different style of tale again, uh, showing the you know the say the scope of all these. It's the most kind of out there of, uh, <laughs> of any of the Scottish chronicles, I think, isn't it? Yes, I think we can say <laughs> that this is um, a real trip into fantasy land, and we're basically inside the egg and find ourselves in the story of Aladdin. And then it gets wor- and then it gets more and more bonkers. As we <laughs> you nearly said that. worse. <laughs> yeah, hey, I didn't mean worse. It gets far worse for the characters, but then it gets more and more out there all the- as it goes on. Yeah, and this one now, looking back at it now, I'm like thinking, yeah, this one's clever. It was doing interesting things, but I've got to admit, at the time, I was like, oh. God, <laughs> God <damn> it. <laughs> it's adventures in out of copyright children's literature in fantastical <laughs> magical world, and people say, "Look at," and there's a narrator, and she's, and it, I know what they're doing. And again, looking back at it at the end is fine, but and then they went along the corridor, and it's like, oh God, they're doing this. It's going so slowly, and the narrator is narrating so slowly. Uh, it started to sort of wind me up a bit, <laughs> but then once you got about, but then that all. But then there's even while it was doing something that really isn't up my street or my cup of tea, um, even while doing that, there's 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 layers going on, and the doctor is starts becoming aware of the fact that there's a narrator and there's that sort of thing. Uh, So the 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 the, the, the structure is being played with. It's 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 clearly being done for in in a in a a postmodern and and multi-layered way. Uh, But yeah, it's still kind of like you know I like. I like the first episode of The Mind Robber and the remaining four episodes go on a bit, in my opinion. <laughs> and it took me, a, <laughs> took me a bit into that zone, I'm afraid. Yeah, the, the, the bit I always like, and I remembered from, from hearing it the first time, was the bit where the narrator says, and the story started before I started telling it this time. And I really like mm. things where it's playing with that, where this world is taking on a life of its own and she's no longer in complete control over it. And and also, yes. I really liked the Doctor talking to her right at the end and trying to work out who she is and, and where she's come from. And we don't get the answers, which is really, really quite nice. So you don't know whether she's actually sort of a fictional part of this world inside or 
or someone who's been transported in that we don't we've not heard of and she's going to be transported back out yeah because 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 we don't know do this is like um the boy alex stroke andrew if this is is this entirely his imagination that's just being created by this thing or is it real uh and just feeding on his imagination uh but then i get i get hung up on notions of reality and like but but once once i know that we're in magical land it's like if somebody dies i don't really give a shit because i know they're not really dead and 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 sure enough that happens in this and that's a bit of a cliche (laughs) for me um i did i also love that the cook resists being turned into a toad even though she mm. she is she is not having it she is still <laughs> yes. exactly the same yeah. character by her force of will <laughs> <laughs> yes and and then we do and and as as the bonkersness escalates we get um the doctor's scarf becomes uh, an active participant in the story voiced by andrew sachs uh of uh, of manuel and many many other things fame yeah, and that's the the line that I really remembered from it was the the line that the scarf has when um, it says to the doctor, "Don't you believe the evidence of your own mad staring eyes?" <laughs> <laughs> that's a terrific line. Yeah, and, they, and the yeah. narrator is because um, I, I, I wasn't sure if I recognised the voice. It's Sophie Ward who played the love interest in uh, Young Sherlock Holmes. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, no. oh no. there's a classic. There's an un- mm-hmm. massively underrated film. I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I loved that when I was little. Yeah, and um, yeah, it was probably a very early crush for me as well. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking slowly and 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 in a deep voice is, is <laughs> I can see why that was doing it for you then. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of playing with with the structure and the story, the other thing I really like is when. Mrs. Wibsey is buried under the the uh, avalanche of coin, and the doctor kind of makes a, a, a nice joke about it. Is it economic downturn or something like that, and uh, and then she just sort of pops out again, and the doctor says, "Oh, we're in a story here because these uh, arbitrary cliffhangers keep uh, will keep coming along to uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> to create peril every so often." Just said, "Oh, I was holding my breath." <laughs> it seemed like a very on the nose comment on the the sort of the structure of of doctor who of every 25 (laughs) minutes having a a cliffhanger which isn't always resolved uh very satisfactorily i like it more now that we're talking about it than i did when i was actually listening to it maybe i was was in a grumpy mood (laughs) i have them occasionally believe it or not but it's very nice that his scarf comes and rescues him (laughs) um is there looking after him and just the little hints like it's coiling around like a snake is sort of drawing us back into the main story and making mm. us remember that the the serpent crest stuff is still going on outside yeah and yeah. and it feels like a um I guess like if the previous one felt like a graphic novel, this feels like one of those nineteen eighties kids mo- cartoon films. Um, I could just I could just picture it in that sort of eighties animation style. Uh, and the other great line he has about the scarf is he says, um, to betray you must first be long, which uh, was another kind of lovely double meaning as well. So I enjoyed the uh, the wordplay in this one a lot. Oh, it's very you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also nice because we do have 
for for good reasons um the same cast as the previous story pretty much mm-hmm. sort of and all playing sort of slightly different roles but it's really nice that the doctor and mrs wibsey are completely unaffected by all of this and it's nice when everyone starts to get a little bit of self-awareness about who they who they were and what roles that they'd played and things like that. And then when the magician turns up, well, of course, it's Simon Shepard again as Mr. Boolin, Bewley, whoever, whichever one you want to call yeah. him, because who else would it be? I mean, if it wasn't, it would have been the Doctor, obviously, but the Doctor's re- the world has rejected him as part of this or couldn't make him part of it. So it's, yeah, it's really, really good. But we learn that the the scarf is a is a fragment of the Doctor, don't we? Who is also the the scarf is the genie, and is a fragment of the Doctor that's that's been sort of split off, which becomes mm. important later on when we realise that the Skishtari have used this opportunity to take some of the Doctor, uh, take some of the Doctor's memories and mind away as well. Oh, of course. Well, that makes perfect sense. That never occurred to me before you just explained that. Oh, with what happens, yeah, with what's revealed in episode five. Yeah. Sorry, Paul, I've been very slow all these years. (laughs) (laughs) And you're a lot cleverer than me. (laughs) And yeah, the three wishes thing, the way that you know builds into the resolution is uh is great as well and they realize that the, the last wish can be used outside the egg because the power of the egg is still uh is still there and and this sort of ends the trilogy really of these stories with yeah. um with everybody back in their right place and the doctor uh going back off in the tardis and, and it's kind of the first of the of the the two occasions in this box set where the doctor won't let mrs wibsey come traveling with him hmm. why do you think that is i, I Sort of thinking, especially after the, uh, especially at the very end of the box set, is it to keep us safe? Yeah, and, and or to, is it just to give these, to give this a, defi- a real feeling of closure that, um, mm. you know, that he means you know, he might see you again someday, as he says at the end of this. This is part three, and it ends with him, "Come on, I'm taking you home. I've got other other places to go and other other, other adventures to have. I'll see you around sometime." Which is an unusual thing to do at the end of part three of a five-parter. Um, although it, this is why, so I had a, I had an, a bit of confusion with my with my audible listening, because audible splits things if they're over a certain length into like two separate or more separate uh, downloads, uh, and it just does it fairly arbitrarily at the point in the chapters at which enough is done. So the whole of the Nest Cottage trilogy up to the end of this episode. Is all in, is part one of the Audible download, and then part two of the Audible download is just the last two instalments oh. of this. Um, and, and somehow <laughs> I got, I arbitrary. got, to, yeah, <laughs> I got to. I mean, it's when it reaches the limit, it just chops. It doesn't do it half and half. It fill, fills up one part and then just stops and jumps to the next one. So, but I'd got to the end of, of Serpent Crest. And and then I'd, I'd got distracted. And then when I came back to this and again, for some reason, I got it into my head. It was the last four were in part two. So I jumped to what I thought was the second episode, but was actually the one we're about to get to now, episode four. So I basically, what I'm saying is I missed episodes two and three on my first listen, well, or my first re-listen. Uh, and it, weirdly, it worked fine because episode, <laughs> episode four is like a fresh start. Anyway, and it's like time has passed. Mysterious things have happened. So I jumped straight from episode one to episode four. I'm like, 
Oh, clearly time has passed, but wow, a lot of stuff's happened. What's actually going on here? And I kept waiting for the flashback that was going to explain it all. And it was only when I got to the end of episode five and waited for the next two episodes to begin, and they just didn't. <laughs> I realised uh, I, I had had a little bit of a, a little bit of a shuffling incident mm-hmm. in the structure, but it did. But it was a convenient point because mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there is there is a real. Uh, it, 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 it's a it's a real cutoff point, isn't it? At the end of this one, the eggs buried. Off you'll go. Maybe I'll see you again someday, Wibsy. Cue theme music. Yeah, and it I mean it is very in character for the fourth Doctor to go off and do that and not have a proper goodbye and just be off on his own. He's probably having his comic strip adventures at this point or or something like that. Picking <laughs> yeah. up Sharon with the new K nine, doing something like that, then then comes back and, and finishes this this off. But I'd completely forgotten that he did that. And of course we know he has to do that because we have someone else turning up unexpectedly and rather brilliantly um, <laughs> sort of playing with our expectations in this and in a neat piece of recasting um, um, as the, um, as the visitor <laughs> turns up in the Hexford invasion. So listen away now, put your fingers in. <laughs> Stop listening now if you don't want spoilers. Are we going to say that? I mean, because yeah, it is, a, it is quite a spoiler when we discover what's really going on. Yes. Um, yeah. But so we're back to Hexford. We're back to Nest Cottage, um, and uh, and and Mike. We haven't mentioned Mike Yates yet, have no, we? He's not in it he much. Hasn't been around, has no, he? we hear him briefly. Doesn't he fall out of a window at the start? No, at the start of part yeah. one. Yeah, he has some kind of altercation mm-hmm. uh, and has to go off to hospital. Uh, but but he's back in in, in part three, uh, in part four, and is delighted to introduce Mrs. Wibsey to the Doctor. But it's not the Doctor that she knows. It's David. Troughton? It is David Troughton, David isn't it? Troughton, yeah. yes. David Troughton playing a mysterious visitor who who is, to all intents and purposes, the Doctor. It's the second Doctor. Yes. Uh, and it's the first time he's properly done that, isn't it? I think he'd read some, a couple, he'd done a couple of companion chronicles, hadn't he? And, yes. And he'd also done um, several of the Troughton novelizations for BBC Audio at this point. So he was used to working with BBC Audio and everyone was sort of coming away saying, oh, he sounds just like his dad because he's yeah. recreating all these lines and he's he's really good. And so he is is great. Cult. I mean, if you're going to get a Troughton, get get <laughs> get him or, or Michael. Yeah, he's but, what we'll do. They both sound brilliant, but David yeah. Troughton here is really great. Yeah, he is. And you instantly get, get the idea, you're kind of unsettled because he's not quite right. And you don't quite know why, and yet he is. But he's but the way he treats Mrs. Wibsey instantly puts you off him. It's a really brilliant piece of writing because you're now so yeah. in love with Mrs. Wibsey. I think well, everyone knows her, her really likes her. <laughs> so if if her um, hackles are up and it, she's not feeling quite right, then obviously something is not quite right here. And the second Doctor would never have been as rude to her as he was in in this. What's quite clever about it, I think, is the suggestion that this is the season 6B Doctor because the fourth Doctor says, uh, oh, some of my exploits in that incarnation have been removed from my memory by the Time Lords, which I took to mean it's post-war games, mm-hmm. which interestingly, Big Finish are now making uh, Beyond War Games with Michael Troughton as the second doctor. Um, but that made me think of, uh, because it's, it's the, it's the 
well, it's the two doctors and the five doctors, isn't it? Which, uh, yes. which, which uh, this theory comes from. But in the two doctors, he's not quite right either, is he? He's quite, he's much, he's, he's quite a different character. I was finding the mm-hmm. two doctors when he's, he's a bit nastier to Jamie with the, you know your horrible mongrel, uh, mongrel accent or whatever he says. And um, yeah, yeah. He's much more grandiose, and I'm a time lord, and all that kind of stuff. So I did kind of there is there is a wiggle room there to think. Well, maybe mm-hmm. it is the second Doctor up until a certain point, anyway. <laughs> yeah, and 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 and, it's, and I love the way it plays with your expectations. And like you said, it's that that moment where they deliberately they it, it reels you in, so you start to think it really is him, and then he's just suddenly really horrible to Mrs. Whipsy, yeah. uh, and uh, and you know that therefore you know it's not him. But in the, then it's like it, it, it sets your your mind racing. Why is somebody pretending to be the second Doctor? There's been no reason given for that. Why mm-hmm. is it that particular Doctor? And uh, it does all get there is a good reason. Well, well the yeah, there is. Yeah, there is a reason. Is. Uh, mm-hmm. bit, bit of a luck, luck of the draw situation, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. When it when it does get explained in mm-hmm. the in the next episode. But it's really nice that Mike trusts him implicitly and is completely um, <laughs> sort of Mike. taken in by him. <laughs> Mike, he never learns, does he? No. <laughs> <laughs> he is the most gullible member of unit. How he actually got clearance to be a member of a secret <laughs> service agency is a little bit baffling because mm-hmm. the guy falls for everything going, doesn't he? <laughs> I should say this one's narrated by Mrs. Wibsey as well, which is another way that you're on her side because it's it's all from her point of view. And this is where the yeah, stuff yeah. about she's worried about Tish Maddox, uh, bees, and all that kind of stuff as well. Oh, and Deirdre Watts it. Don't forget Deirdre Watts it. <laughs> oh, Neris Hughes. Yeah. <laughs> because she has been mentioned throughout, hasn't she? Deirdre yes. Watts it. Mm-hmm. I think I'm right in saying. And then we find out she's just got kind of a hard to pronounce Welsh name, which is why. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Whipsy always calls her Deirdre Watts it. And it's <laughs> Neris Hughes with the thickest, coddest Welsh accent as well. Which is really odd because she is authentically Welsh and she could do it. But she, she knows exactly how to play this character. And her and, and um, Tish, um, Deirdre and Tish, which are very Paul Mars names. They're, those are names yeah. that crop up across his work a lot. So they're very northern women style <laughs> names of a certain certain vintage um and Neris Hughes and Joanna Tope are just brilliant and they play really well together and Joanna Tope has got the deep voice and she's very reminiscent of um what's her name in Canine and Company oh Juno yes. Baker and that yeah. that kind of <laughs> yeah volu- you could just see her volu- <laughs> voluptuousness and dressed in velour and and all of this and silks and just a bit yeah a bit you can understand why my mrs Wibsey does not approve of her at all yeah. and there's a nice because she's she's there is hughes's cousin isn't she but there's a nice yes. line about i had to get rid of the accent <laughs> 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 and then there's a little bite back later on from there is hughes about um some parts of the the um the family that they had to cut off from from the rest mm. of them and, oh, yes. and things like yeah. this. So there's just this little recognition sort of between both of them that they're almost like tolerating each other, but not really. Yeah, and she's she's very much got a sight set on Mike Yates as well, hasn't she? Which uh, <laughs> yeah. is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to David Troughton as the Doctor, I was doing re- doing a little reading around this and uh, and this might be well known but I'd never heard of this in the 1990s Peter Darvel Evans had proposed a new doctor based on David Troughton 
for the seventh doctor to regenerate into in the virgin new adventures and they'd sort oh. of planned a photo shoot and everything and then bbc enterprises vetoed it i i'd never heard that that they were thinking of, of replacing the seventh doctor that, that does ring a bell, but I can't get it mixed up because then DWM did it as well, didn't they? But then turned it into a, but that turned out to be a fake out. But was that because the Paul, Paul McGann was already on the horizon at that point, maybe, or did they just say no? You're only book range. You're not allowed to do your own doctors. I think it was yeah. that they they were not allowed to be not allowed to continue the they could continue the series mm. within the parameters that they'd got, but they weren't allowed to change Didn't. the Doctor and have their own Doctor yeah. in case later on it did come back and. Right. Yeah. rendered that all all nonsense which yeah. would never happen we'll <laughs> never get any other ninth doctors <laughs> oh, we used to be so linear about these things didn't we, we? did the well, it doctor. A different time yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> suppose by the time the doctor Who magazine did it that was the eighth doctor regenerating into the nick briggs doctor of course yeah that was much later wasn't it yeah there was less less prospect i guess at that time yeah. of it coming back yeah as far as we knew, but in this one, and and, and um, the second Doctor really gets the run of it for the for for most. Like it's, I noticed it's over a half an hour in before um, Tom's Doctor pops up mm. again, and and everything has moved on, and it's great. Every, you know, everything has moved on without him, and he's on the he's on the back foot. He's he, we we know more than him, and all the characters know more than him, and he's having to try. Excuse me, he's, he's having to try and find it all out. Yeah. And the suggestion that for him, quite a long time has passed as well, isn't there? Um, since he's last been in Hexford. Oh yes, yes. Because of course, yeah. This 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 is a this is a story that involves planet hopping all over the place, but at a time when the Doctor didn't at all have reliable control of the TARDIS, like he ended up having in the eighties. This is this is the sort of season fifteen Doctor, isn't it? Where you mm-hmm. can get the impression he can he can sort of get Le- he can get Leela to victorian london but not the right part of it and that's so yeah he's got a bit of control over the tardis so yeah there's a nice reference in this story when the vicar's trying to get mrs wibstead to do the is like the, the summer fair or the, the show or something mm. and she says you, you did the can can last year oh the christmas yeah. show that was it yeah yeah there's yeah. always a christmas element in the escort there one, is, isn't it mm-hmm. i think there's two i think this one's this story, this series spans two christmases it starts it starts oh, out on one does, christmas yeah. episode one and by episode four they're planning the next year's christmas yeah. play already and I thought the Can Can thing must be a reference to her visit to the Moulin Rouge. Yes, definitely. Yeah. The Demon of Paris, because there's a Lautrec thing later on as well, isn't there, when the fourth mm-hmm. doctor does turn up? It's nice to get some yeah, internal nice continuity with harking back. Yeah, yeah within, the... within the Nest Cottage series, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which sort of very much establishes them as their own thing, which is is brilliant and there's it's this own little pocket universe within doctor who that has its own rules but can refer back to what they've done doesn't have to refer Mm. back to anything on tv but it refers back to to other adventures although i do do love that the second doctor is always sort of harping on about the yeti incident and the cybermen in the sewers (laughs) and i've done all of these things and why don't you believe me and things that felt just about in character and he's just bumbling enough to be endearing to to the to the crowd keep watching the skies (laughs) yes yeah and everybody gets quite fond of him um uh, despite because they're sort of in a way he's apart from the moments where he shows his true colors the rest of the time he's actually sort of he's a bit nicer than the fourth doctor because he's he's (laughs) he's more charming and and Mm -hmm. uh yeah yeah and then is it Deirdre or Tish that, that think 
that Mrs. Wibsey and the Fourth Doctor were a couple because said yes. something about uh, yeah the the. What's uh, <laughs> your man back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly the ship arrives above the village in a nice piece of sound design with with the sound sort of uh, of the the ship coming in the skies and it and the earth trembling and everything else and finally this is where you you have that moment where you think well maybe this second doctor is right because what he said has actually happened mm-hmm. and again it's sort of playing with your perceptions again there so it's another level of well he must be okay because he's told the truth but he's not <laughs> as, we, <laughs> as we later find out I think there is enough doubt in there, isn't there, that you're not sure even by the end of this story because he, he's going off and doing things. Mrs. Wibsey's watching him. He's going off and planting these trees. But the Doctor does go off and do stuff. He doesn't tell people mm. exactly what he's doing so it can be revealed later. Like you say, he's, he knows all all of these Second Doctor stories that he's referring back to, which adds weight to the fact that he is the Second Doctor. So, it's yeah, it, it does yeah. keep the audience guessing. And 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 even though the doctor, the fourth doctor, turns up halfway through this one, we don't get the meeting until the final story, which is a bit of kind of delayed gratification, isn't it? It's like the uh, yes. the doctor meeting Father Gregory. It's, it's what we want to see, but they they let, they make you wait for it a little while. Yeah, yeah. you will buy disc five. Come on, you've got this yeah. far. <laughs> There's a treat in store for you when when you get this one. Come on, what you and it is for. Yeah, and it is the grand finale of all three of these series. So yeah, they want it, it, mm-hmm. It's got to go out with a bang, and everything keep getting uh, bigger and more dramatic. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's a great cliffhanger with Hexford being <laughs> being ripped from the earth basically <laughs> by the Skishtari ship. And the Doctor in the TARDIS sort of desperately trying to fight against it. And then as we we realise, the other Doctor with his machine that you think is doing something is actually increasing the power of the Skishtari because he's in league with them. But you don't quite know this yet. And so he's doing something. And every time he does something, the fourth Doctor's reacting in the TARDIS to this. And it's just brilliant. Really, really good. Mm. And yeah, and and you're getting proper TARDIS scenes as well with the TARDIS door noise and and, and all that sort of thing, which we go we can go for a long time without ever hearing in Nest Cottage and, and stories. Mm. And when you suddenly hear it, it reminds you that this this is you know the, the Fourth Doctor from the TV, uh, just in a different in, in in this different setting. And there's that lovely moment, isn't there, where where the Doctor tells Mrs. Wibsey to go off and be safe in the village. And she says, oh, there's no way, I'm coming with you. And she's there in the TARDIS with him. And it feels so right and so earned that she's there by his side at this point. Hmm. After all they've been through. And so we reach Survivors in Space, which is our um, story this time, um, narrated by... uh, Richard Franklin as Mike Yates, because he is in Hexford, which has found its way onto a mysterious moon, which which fooled me for ages, and I'd completely forgotten that this was where it finally ties up with the first story, and they are actually mm-hmm. on the Rebel Moon. But Hexford is under a force shield and um, keeping going in the dark, sort of setting up their days rationing out the food that they've got across the village, but still having their weekly um, village meetings, planning their Christmas show. And it's always like life goes on no matter what and where you end up. 
if your English village is transported across time and space to a mysterious moon, then you're just <laughs> going to keep on with the same traditions. <laughs> yeah, and this was this this reminded me of a um, a film that I'd heard about, and I've still never seen it. Um, but called there was a, it, it's a, a 1935 science fiction movie there were such things in the 30s and of course there were um uh, that, uh called once in a new moon which was about an english village that gets sucked into space by a comet and uh, and, it got, and it's actually a, a sort of a tale of um of, of, of the class system and how people cope and do people all muck in together or do they end up turning their turning their noses up at each other i think i guess there was a bit of getting ready for the second world war in it i don't know or, or, or what was that the idea that the class something was coming that might smash the british class system and how would we all cope if that did happen uh, i don't know if that's just a coincidence but uh it, it, it could, could well be the type of thing that paul mars would be very much um uh, clued into if anyone is yeah yeah, so after you mentioned that, I, I went and found this this movie, which I would oh, really, I would recommend this to, to anybody. It's you can watch it for free on the Talking Pictures TV website. So if you if you sign up for it, uh, I think we're all kind of aficionados of, of Talking Pictures TV because uh, there's some fantastic stuff on there. But yeah, if you, I'd never um, sort of signed into the website before, but if you do, there's loads of movies you can watch on their website for free, and Once in a New Moon is one of them. Uh, so it's only about an hour long, I think, but it's absolutely brilliant and yeah, just wonderful that I think something from 1935 still exists as well, given that you know yeah. we're uh, you know we're still mourning the loss of uh, of a lot of Doctor Who episodes from you know 30 years after that, uh, mm. and it, it, and it's terrific. I think it almost certainly is an influence having having watched it now, and uh, and having listened to these last two episodes. There's there's a few sort of nice nice kind of parallels with it. Um, and it's interesting as well, the parallel, I suppose, what you were saying there, Pete, with, with Nicholas and Alexandra, the two very different types of movie. And this is a lot of a much jollier <laughs> movie. But yeah. The, yeah, that class struggle is is a big part of both of them. It's it's the you know, the aristocracy and the workers and the the people who are exploited. Um, because yeah, once they are cut off and they, uh, their their village is uh, goes off into space and becomes like another moon basically orbiting orbiting the earth in this um but still with an atmosphere and, and that kind of thing and uh so the uh, yeah the kind of the the local uh, gentry are just like well it assumes charge and then um you know forms a government which it puts himself in charge of and everything but then all the resources of his estate don't get shared but everybody else has to share everything and uh and you know obviously leads to uh, <laughs> leads to a revolution and, and all that kind of stuff but yeah it's 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 a really really great film, and and some of the stuff yeah. that happens in that film happens here, where uh, because you've got uh, Mike Yates who's who's kind of put himself in charge here, and he's letting mm. Deirdre and Tish have more supplies than the others, and they're having a nicer meal and that kind of thing, and then yeah, all, all the stuff about the committees and, uh, and and all that stuffs there, and the the postmaster in the village on Once in a New Moon is the one who's trying to warn everybody. Initially, he's trying to warn everybody that this is going to happen. And yeah, he's not unlike the second Doctor, basically. He's this sort of eccentric little man that nobody really listens to initially and then turns out to be right. So, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd almost certainly say that Paul Myers is aware of this film. And it's, it's yeah, I would, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to it because it is, it is lovely. Who could imagine in the 1930s they were imagining a version of Britain that was somehow cut off from all of its neighbours and uh, <laughs> yeah. running out of food and having to, and having to introduce <laughs> rationing. Such a thing could never happen in this century, could it? 
Well, no, it's it's a thing that English film just keeps coming back to. Because <laughs> funny that Pimlico as well, which does yeah. exactly the same thing. Yeah. So yeah, um, but it's it's really good, and I, I really love sort of how Mike sort of narrates about the siege spirits and them all carrying their their lanterns around with them, and mm. and everything is by fire, and they're having to they're finding ways to keep cooking just about because there's no electricity and and things yeah. like this. So it's all that sort of um, keeping going in adversity and um, British style and you just keep going. It's the blitz mm. spirit, isn't it? And all of that. So, uh, but, but, but then finally, Mike does start to have his doubts about the second Doctor, doesn't he? <laughs> After finally. he's constantly <laughs> doing things that seem just a little bit sketchy. And like, why was he communicating with the aliens again? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I was sending a mayday! <laughs> yeah. Mike is very innocent. Mm-hmm. But, and then the fourth doctor, the fourth and second doctors get together, and at first they they be, the, there's the, there's the typical doctorish multi doctor clash, uh, but then that become but then they basically get drunk, don't they? <laughs> 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 they just, on, on ginger beer, I'm sure. So probably not. Yeah. But and there's a nice there's a mention to uh, one of my favourite things that keeps cropping up in these. Uh, Mike hears them singing the song "Show Me the Way to Go Home," which the <laughs> it's doc- just to haunt you, Pete. It's it is because the doctor was singing that in the early bit of this, and and Tom ba- and, and the doctor quotes it in uh, "Brain of Morbius." I watched that the mm-hmm. other week. And he was like, "I had a little drink about an hour ago." Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um it all it all ties up uh but then um you've got the and, and i love the way the narration in all of these sometimes has to rise to little challenges like as as mike is narrating one bit he then says and unbeknownst to me the doctor was doing something so it's like yeah that, that's, how you, that's how you get around the fact that your narrator didn't know that mm-hmm. this was happening but is still telling you that it happened even though it was unbeknownst to him so how's he telling you it, <laughs> it uh, the, the, you just got to have the bravado to uh, to go for it yeah because in the first series of course, the Doctor is telling Mike what's happened after he's sort of pieced together the story. So we haven't got that. But here, it it feels like it should be narrating while it while the story is going on. But obviously, there's some kind of hindsight as well. So <laughs> it's just yeah. And but you know, you just get swept along with it because it's <laughs> a great way of storytelling. <laughs> I love that. Um, and and one of, there's a nice bit in this where the the second Doctor goes, "Oh, put a sock in it, Yates." Yeah. <laughs> Which is, that's where his mask slips, yeah. and, uh, and we start to realise what it is. So, yeah, should we reveal uh, in case the listeners haven't listened yet? Go and listen to it first. But yeah, so it turns out, doesn't it, that this is in fact this. He thinks he is the Doctor, but he's not. He is a clone who was created when one of the Skishtari. Uh, lashed the fourth doctor with his tongue uh, in one of the earlier installments of this, uh, and uh, that actually he was he was deliberately ripping the doctor a bit of the doctor's DNA, and they grew they've grown a clone. But because it's a lottery that transpires that if you clone the doctor, it's a lottery which incarnation you're going to get, and they uh, they got the second, which is a, a really nice part, uh, um, part of sparring partner for the for the fourth they do go together really well don't they yeah it just sort of works doesn't it unexpectedly and i suppose it's a i because if another fourth doctor had turned up we'd instantly be oh what's this what's going on and mm. you 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 wouldn't sort of believe it so much but because it is a different incarnation you've got that that doubt there that actually are they doing a multi-doctor story what's going and mm. 
and stuff like that. And I love sort of the reference, the doctor, the fourth doctor sort of turning around and said, well, I kept a 500 year diary at this point and this never mentions yeah. this happening and Hexford <laughs> and I'd have remembered and there's all that little bit of sparring that you want to hear and all those sort of little references. Because Big Finish weren't recasting by this stage either, were they? That was, oh. they, you'd only get second Doctor stories through the Companion Chronicles, I think. So you'd get Fraser Hines narrating and maybe doing a bit of the second Doctor, but you wouldn't get the second Doctor in a story no. with Big Finish. So this, this would have felt like a bit of a novelty at the felt time. Quite and then daring at the time, mm. actually. Yeah. <laughs> From yeah. what I remember. Yeah. yeah, we're quite used to it now, I suppose, through. Um, through David Bradley and uh, you got Tim Trelaw and all, and all that kind of stuff, haven't we? Jacob Dudman. Yeah, yeah. It's it's another once once the line's been crossed, it stops seeming such a big deal for for old doctors certainly. Yeah. Although it's still a bit weird that there's somebody else pretending to be Matt Smith when Matt Smith is like thirty or whatever he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so um, the doctor has the egg. All and, comes back to the egg. Um, all comes back to this, and he's buried it under Nest Cottage, which of course then makes sense of the name of why it was called Nest Cottage. Yes, yeah, so, oh, oh, lovely. Yeah. Sort of... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's one all. Got an egg. Yeah. <laughs> and so that sort of ties all that up, and that there, this is all kind of been planned that the Doctor had nest cottage built in the first place and obviously has owned it for since it was was built and so it's sort of become his 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 home sort of after this and um yes and then obviously the skishtari are coming for for their baby and it is eventually there's a wonderful bit where mrs Wibsey is carried and and oh the doctor um, the second Doctor has broken into the TARDIS after stealing Mrs. Wibsey's key. Oh yeah, that's a really dram- that is a really dramatic scene. Yes. Where he's like, tricking her into giving her the key to the TARDIS and, and fails, and then he just nicks it anyway. Yeah, it's in her cardigan pocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just so beautifully prosaic and absolutely ripe for the character. And then ends yeah. up kidnapping her as well, and she's in the TARDIS and the egg is beginning to crack. And then then the um the second doctor begins to panic beautifully in the way that only mm. the second doctor can yeah yeah the you know and that's such a to the to compared to the unflappable insouciance of the fourth doctor who could just never really seem to be in peril uh, mm. the, the, to have the second doctor going into a complete flap I and mean, is that the point where we've we've found out now what we what we just talked about that that he's not that he is a clone, and it's it's quite sad. There's that nice little bit where the fourth Doctor says, you know, oh yeah, we let's not. Oh by the way, they, they probably he'll probably only survive for a few months. Let, let's not tell him. It'll be kinder yeah. to not tell him because mm-hmm. he's because he's nice, really. It's and he, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. apart from being on this mission for the Skishtari, but yeah, he didn't knowingly decide to be evil. They just created him and and, and set him off on this mission. And that's like the clones in the Invisible Enemy as well that they've got a short lifespan, isn't it? it ties of course, into that, yes. albeit mm-hmm. that they they only last what like a couple of hours or something, isn't it? Whereas these ones, you know, it seems like he's mm. going to last a bit longer. But yeah, mm. it's it's the idea that they they're not sustainable. Yeah, and it's a kind of it's a nice way. Also, it's a it's a a nice clean ending. There's nothing messy about it. You know, the Doctor doesn't no. have to mm. doesn't have to be imprisoned or, or banished to another dimension or anything. He's just going to naturally fade away at some point. Mm. 
but yeah, quite have a nice existence probably at Nest Cottage. Yeah, yeah, until until that happens. Yes, and we get link right back to the very first story when it turns out that the that unexpectedly Hexford has been transported to Rebel Moon, and <laughs> the Robotov um, robots are are coming to help. Which is really nice. So it sort of ties it all up nicely in a bow. So we've come full circle to where we started. Yeah, it's good. I think when Alex turns up, you kind of immediately, I did kind of immediately guessed that it would be Alex because it talks about being any kind of uh, royal regalia and that type of thing. Mm. And uh, but he's now in his his thirties, I think. And that yeah, he's retained this psychic link with the egg and with this Skishtari infant inside it. So he's able to persuade it to turn on on the other Skishtari and. And kill them, and I think, yeah, you know, sort of, was in contrast to the movie Nicholas and Alexandra, where the Romanovs have been utterly wiped out. He's found a more Doctor Who solution in terms of he's been able to unite everybody by being a cyborg. He's been able to, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, kind of unite both sides and 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 avoid a revolution that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's seen the Robotovs wiped out. And it's a neat way of defeating the unstoppable Skishtari, who have been set up as very powerful serpents that you're not yeah. going to defeat easily. And so because of the bond with the egg, he then has bonded with, with the young Skishtari inside. And that has affected its development, which is a really nice bit of of plotting, I think. I really liked that. Yeah, because that wouldn't have happened if the doctor hadn't interfered. If the, if the egg had just remained inside him for ten years, but by sending them off to Hexford and separating them physically, and then uh, you know all the stuff with Aladdin and everything, that's mm. created a much stronger psychic link, I guess, than, than than would have been there in the first place. Yeah, it'll it all just feeds in feed feeds back around really 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 nicely. Yeah. Yep, and then we get. The the second Doctor gets his heroic moment at the end where he is then the only person who can pilot the Skishtari ship because mm. he's linked to them. So he then is the person who gets to take Hexford back home, which is is rather nice as well. Yeah, and I, I did wonder if we were going to get if he was going to get a um you know a sort of heroic death, but um but no, they, it's nice that they give him a nice little retirement in in uh, in Hexford instead. And then we get the sort of really sad ending i i've i've forgotten how how heartbreaking it is that the doctor won't take mrs wibsey off with him in time and space because she wants to go yes (laughs) and he's really enjoyed her company and has really enjoyed this so it it yeah it seems a bit unfair yeah, this really struck me a lot more listening to it this time. Yeah, in terms of trying to figure out why, whether it was to keep her safe or whether he just wanted Nest Cottage looked after, or yeah, I get you know ultimately what the, 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 the writers got two choices: either they all fly off into the sunset together, but this time he decided not to. Yeah, and I, and it does it just I guess it does just cement this as being the, the closing of the book, you know, and, mm. and and while he says maybe I'll come back someday, in effect. It is a it, it is Mrs. Wibsey getting a departure scene, isn't it? As much as mm-hmm. Sarah got one, you know, uh, and so in a way that I guess that cements her status as a companion in a way that she's got she gets to have a beginning and a middle and an end. Mm. Yeah. Oh well, she says nothing yeah. like a bit of housekeeping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because I couldn't quite remember, I think, going into this, how her story ended. 
and there was hints, especially in the previous set in Demon Quest, that she was hankering after living in her own time again, wasn't That's there? That's right. That, I couldn't yeah. quite remember whether she did end up back in a time that she was more more used to. Yeah, but I think, and, and they did deal with that a bit in Demon Quest, didn't they? Because they go back to her own time for one of the stories, don't they? And, and she actually she decides, she decides to not stay. I yeah, think she yeah she's not home there either, and realizes oh, she talks that. Yeah, her home's in the 21st century. It's the home comforts and things, isn't it? That she said, yeah. Oh, and that's in this one too. Yeah, when when they're back in the in the Victorian one, uh, she's she's commenting on how she's actually got. She she quite likes the yeah the hope the home comforts of of, of yeah. modern uh, life. Yeah, the mini market and the uh, yeah, and the <laughs> yes. fact she can't go, she can't get served in the pub on her own as well. In in yes, and all those things suddenly hit her. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, and and she's really it's a lovely you know she's had a lovely growth as a character without it needing to be some huge huge thing that completely changes her. Just just the time that we've spent with her, we've seen her her changing and becoming more much more rounded and and much a happier person, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, and you think how even in those early episodes in the second series that she was not happy about being dragged off on these adventures. And was a very unwilling adventurer, mm. and then suddenly, sort of after Paris, she, it was almost like she warmed right up to this idea of, yeah. of, of being the Doctor's companion, and and not necessarily, um, I don't know, because I think she does enjoy his company, but also she likes to complain about him and mm. feel like she's <laughs> organising him and, and yes. things like that, which makes her great fun to be with. So. Yeah, I just really felt for her at the end. And yeah, I'd forgotten that that was the ending. But again, it's very Tom Baker's doctor to go off and and do this. And he's off to new adventures, but he's leaving his friends behind. So while Romis is whimsy, I think she has really lovely scenes with Alex throughout these stories from Mm. from The Broken Crown onwards. She's when um, his face is revealed to her. She doesn't, you know, she's not kind of repulsed by him or anything like that. She just feels sympathy. And having gone from, especially the first story, where she's quite dismissive of robots and androids as being real and that kind of thing, and then, uh, and in in Aladdin time as well, she's she 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 builds quite a good relationship with him. I think. Yeah, because they're paired up for the whole whole thing, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, you wouldn't immediately suppose think she's very maternal, um, but yeah, they they yeah. do end up with a, a really nice relationship. Yeah, and and it's not the very end for her um, because we've got the because the, the Baker's End series mini series or I don't know what to call it that, that followed a couple of years after this. Once Tom Baker had gone off and started doing regular Doctor Who's with Big Finish, he came back to do some more stuff with Paul Mars that was even even far wilder of, <laughs> and further away <laughs> from Doctor Who um, uh, than than this. Uh, where he, but where he is playing himself, Tom Baker, living in a cottage with a housekeeper called Frenella Frimbley, um, <laughs> played by Susan, uh, Susan, yeah, Susan Jameson. I was going to nearly call her Louise Jameson, uh, but, but, uh, and it's exactly it's the same character, but it's it's in an even stranger and more gothic uh, um, and uh, uh, surreal world, uh, and they're great. Um, but um, and then I think. 
Paul Mars eventually wrote a short story that confirmed that it is the same person. She's just changed her name <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, for, for, for um, copyright reasons, I suppose, because the BBC probably own her. I don't know how that all that works. But yeah, the the, bake, the, the Baker's End, um, there, I think there are three with Tom Baker and then one more was a sort of uh, postscript with Colin Baker. <laughs> and any other baker, I don't know, Cheryl Baker could come along and do one at some point. <laughs> but, um, uh, but they also, they, with them, it's um, Tom Baker and Katie Manning, starring as the actor Tom Baker and the actor Katie Manning, um, who are sometimes confused for the characters that they used to play on. It's, it's completely it's completely wow. off the wall but it's they're, they're really fun and a whole other a whole other thing to do maybe another time don't know if they'll get a final reissue but um we could, we could take a look at them at some point because they're really fun um but yeah it's not it's not the end of mrs wibsey at the end of and this. there are a couple of mrs wibsey adventures that bbc audio have done in the last couple of years as oh, well yes. yeah. which i've not heard but I keep thinking <laughs> I, I must go and, and hear those so it's susan jameson telling the story um, yeah. So I don't know much more than that. So it's lovely that she's got a life and is still around and still, still sort of part of the extended Doctor Who universe. Yeah, a bit like a bit like Evelyn Smythe, a character, in, in some, in, in, in both in terms of being a a, a mature female companion, uh, uh, with a created to go alongside a, a Baker Doctor, one of the um, one of the more you know, gregarious Doctors. Uh, and, but but and so good and just so popular that that they've got that that staying power to have to have their own little footprints that carry on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know about the two of you, but I have thoroughly enjoyed going back over all three of these series. Um, it's always I've always really liked this little corner of the Doctor Who universe. Um, but it has been it's been so long, and it's just been fabulous to have the chance to discuss these stories and revisit Nest Cottage and a lot of it's familiar and a lot of it I'd forgotten so it was like rediscovering mm. something that you really like and really enjoy yeah I can't believe it's over 10 years and I can't um and, and, and it's a real little niche isn't it and it's, it can absolutely be called a, a sort of I don't mean it's in a bad way, but it is almost a you know, forgotten nook of Doctor Who, which is exactly which is the most perfect thing for a poor Mars thing to be, you know, because that's exactly what he'd want to be. It's a little, it's a side street with mysterious, uh, slightly unusual. No, it's just it's not just doing more Doctor Who off the telly. It, it, it's its own its own little world. Yeah, and I, th- I think I said was in the previous ones. It's it's real comfort Doctor Who. It's so it's so cozy, but it's strange and it's exciting and it's funny. But there's something really cozy about it in the way that the the uh, Jago and Lightfoot sets are, there's something really cozy about them as well. Just the, mm. the warmth of the characters and the, I guess it's a Victorian setting in those. And yeah, I've, I've, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed revisiting them and I'll definitely be uh, revisiting them more often. I think now that, uh, yeah, I've kind of got them loaded onto my phone and everything. I'm perfect company to revisit them with as well with, uh, with you fine gentlemen. I likewise. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We've done our own little spin-off. <laughs> so who's Mike and who's Mrs. Wibsey? <laughs> <laughs> I would have been Eris Hughes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you're more Tish. <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah, I can take that. I won't complain about that. <laughs> We'll be back next week where another panel will be discussing something else from the world of Doctor Who. 
In the meantime, you can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at trap1 underscore. And please do consider leaving us a five-star rating, hopefully, or a nice review so you can help other Doctor Who fans find the podcast. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.